Blog Talk Radio. Franchise interviews from Easton, Pennsylvania to Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews. Welcome to Franchise Interviews, an up-close, behind-the-scenes look at franchising and entrepreneurship. Listen to interviews with franchisers, franchisees, franchise authors, franchise experts, and attorneys. And now, welcome your host, Marty McDermott, and Franchise Interviews. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Franchise Interviews, where for over 16 years now, we've been asking the entrepreneurs of one one I'm your host, Marty McDermott. I'm the president of Franchise Interviews, and we have a great show today. Well, I told my friend Nancy Friedman on a recent podcast that one of the many benefits of hosting a podcast is meeting and speaking to people you wouldn't ordinarily get to talk to on a daily basis. So in other words, people you admire or respect. And some examples for me include guests like Warren Gretzius, I just mentioned Nancy Friedman, Michael Gerber, Dr. Scott Shane, as well as previous guests from my favorite shows like Shark Tank and Undercover Boss. The list is really too long. So today we're going to discuss four books that I think make great stocking stuffers or holiday gifts for entrepreneurs. And these four books include The E-Myth Revisited, Why Most Small Businesses Don't Work and What to Do About It, Awakening the Entrepreneur Within, How Ordinary People Can Create Extraordinary Companies, the Illusions of Entrepreneurship, the costly myths that entrepreneurs, investors, and policymakers live by, and Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders, How Your Genes Affect Your Work Life. So the E-Myth Revisited is written by Michael Gerber, and it's called The Entrepreneurial Myth, or it's known as The Entrepreneurial Myth. And this is the myth that entrepreneurs start small businesses. And many have been fooled into believing that only entrepreneurs venture bravely to establish new businesses. But most companies are not formed by entrepreneurs. Instead, what Michael suggests is that the people who are technicians start them. We'll also discuss Michael's fantastic follow-on book, which is called Awakening the Entrepreneur Within. That was also one of my favorites, which interestingly precedes the e-myth. Next, we're going to play our interview with one of my favorite authors, Dr. Scott Shane, to discuss two of his popular books. The first one is called The Illusions of Entrepreneurship. Again, the costly myths that entrepreneurs, investors, and policymakers live by. And also a great book, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders, How Your Genes Affect Your Work Life. Another one that I didn't get to interview is Check Out Abundance. I'm kind of into that one right now. It's the future is better than you think. So we want to wish everyone a happy holidays. Thanks again for listening to the show. And we'll be right back with more franchise interviews. Franchise Teacher. Would you like to know how to franchise your concept or grow your franchise business? Meet the experts at Franchise Teacher. The goal of Franchise Teacher is to teach, coach, consult, and advise. The team of experts at Franchise Teacher will evaluate your business model and present you with a winning business strategy. Franchise Teacher will help you decide whether or not your concept works and if it's franchisable. Franchise Teacher is proud to have over 30 years of experience in franchising as both franchisees and franchisors. Franchise Teacher are developers of over a dozen franchise systems, which include brick and mortar as well as home-based concepts of nearly 3,000 combined franchise locations. Whether you need to add more units or get more customers, Franchise Teacher can help. 
We will teach. Franchise teacher will help you learn our proven system. Coach. Franchise teacher will help you provide a game plan to succeed. Consult. Franchise teacher will make sure you stay on track. And advise. Franchise teacher will help you learn from our over 30 years of experience in franchising as both franchisees and franchisors. Take advantage of our free, no-obligation phone consultation. Simply go to FranchiseTeacher.com or call us at 561-385-3032. That's FranchiseTeacher.com or call us at 561-385-3032. Hi, this is Connie McDermott, Administrative Assistant for Franchise Interviews, LLC, and you're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews, from Easton, Pennsylvania to Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews. We're meeting with the legendary Michael Gerber, and over the past 30 years, Michael has worked with more than 60,000 small business owners and entrepreneurs, and I think it's like 145 different countries as well, um, as well as many thousands more who were called to start their own business but didn't know how to begin. And today we're going to talk to Michael about his extraordinary creation called In the Dreaming Room and his new book, which you and I have been waiting for uh, since the last time we met with him. I think it was back last year in February, Awakening the Entrepreneur Within, How Ordinary People Create Extraordinary Companies Without Any Experience to Guide Them. And Michael Gerber has spent the last 30 years understanding and improving the world of the entrepreneur. This passion led to the founding of the E-Myth Worldwide, in 1977 to transform the way that small business owners do the work of growing their companies. Obviously, you and I have both read the E-Myth, so big fans of that. Hey, Michael, good morning. Welcome to the show. Michael? Hey, Michael. I don't think he's there yet, Don. Hey, Michael. (laughs) I'm here. Oh, hey, Michael. How are you? Hi. Good morning. How are you? How are you doing today? I'm, I'm wonderful. Thank we, you. We brought you in a little early, Michael. We got a little enthusiastic about talking to you. <laughs> well, what can I do? long time. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, joining us is also my co-host, Don Johnson. Um, and I know, Don, you wanted to say hi to... Yeah, hey, Michael. Great to have you back. Uh, Thank you, Don. It was what, Marty, around... Um, I think it was in February or March, Michael. Yeah, it was just when you were, uh, you know, uh, kicking off the, uh, the In the Dreaming Room concept, you know, which Don and I were excited about. You were also writing the book at that time as well. You know? Yep. So... Um, and here we are. And here yeah. we are. You know? And life so, goes on. Absolutely. You know. So, Michael, I thought a great place to start off start off is if you can ask or tell our listeners uh, what is in the dreaming room. Well, <clears throat> the dreaming room was um, an invention of mine um, as a result of a conversation I had with my brother-in-law, Marty Sklar. Right. Marty is the um, um, vice chairman of Disney Imagineering. And for 50 years, um, beginning with Walt, and after Walt's passing, uh, has been the primary leader of the parks. Right. So <clears throat> Anaheim Disney, um, Disney World, um, in Japan, in Florida, in everywhere and anywhere, Marty's been right at the heart of it. And he told me a story about Walt Disney. Um, at the very, very outset of Disney Imagineering, he was in a meeting and he was getting frustrated by the way the meeting was going and he called the end of the meeting and said, "Uh, everybody come on back 
tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. When they came back in the morning, there was a sign on the door which said, Welcome to the Dreaming Room. Right. And when they sat down inside, Walt told them what, in fact, the Dreaming Room was. That This is a place where we're focused on pursuing the impossible. Right. Uh, nothing you know has prepared you for this. Nothing you've done has prepared you for this. We're in pursuit of the impossible, and that's the end product of everything we do. And then he handed them out. Marty told me their new business cards, which then named them the first Disney Imagineers. And so Imagineering is what I do in the dreaming room. And I thought this is exactly what every single person who ever wanted to create a business and every single person who has created a business absolutely needs to do. They need to learn how to dream. And what I'd learned in the um, 30-plus years now, um, as I've worked with small business owners everywhere, is that, in fact, that's the biggest single missing piece. There is no higher purpose. There is no great idea. There is no great result that they want to produce. They simply start a business and go to work. It's interesting, Michael, because you know, everybody dreams when they start a business, money, you know, big success, growing a company, but it seems like most people don't know how to implement that dream. I guess that's the key in your focus. Yeah, well, in fact, the biggest problem is that they dream about owning a business, but then what they do is they go to work to become their own boss, and they um, inevitably end up working for a lunatic. Right. They never really had a bigger idea than becoming their own boss. And there has to be a bigger idea than becoming your own boss, especially if you're going to buy a franchise, because it'll kill you if there's not a bigger idea behind your reason for doing it. And so by a bigger idea, I mean, so what is the great result that you're going to produce through the creation of this company? Um, There's an extraordinary entrepreneur in Bangladesh, uh, of all places, uh, by the name of Muhammad Yunus. And Muhammad Yunus was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize three years ago for his invention of Grameen Bank. And Grameen Bank came about because Muhammad Yunus discovered as a professor of economics in Bangladesh um, the extraordinarily devastating reality of famine in his country and people dying and people completely incapable of being self-sufficient and taking care of themselves. So he decided, after truly thinking through the problem, what the real problem was. The problem really was that people had no access to capital, no matter how minimal that capital might be or needed to be, in order for them to create self-sufficiency. So he created, invented a system, as certainly as Ray Kroc invented the system for McDonald's, he invented a system through which he could provide what he called micro-lending to a person who had absolutely um, no ability to pay back the money they would borrow, but who, provided they could acquire just a little bit of money to be able to produce a basket or to raise a chicken or to do this or to do that, absolutely essential 
skills they needed in order to take care of themselves. His belief was that not only would they be able to pay back the loan, but they would be able to grow a small business doing what they did. And lo and behold, he has truly saved the lives of millions upon millions of impoverished women all over the world. And Grameen Bank's model has been emulated in countless countries throughout the world to do exactly the same thing. So his big result was the eradication of poverty in the world. Now think about that idea. You'd say, yeah, that's great, Michael, but that's not what businesses are made of. But in fact, Grameen Bank is an incredibly profitable and growing company. So you can do good and truly have a profound impact on the world. And that's what I mean about a great result or a big idea or what happens in the dreaming room. As people begin to ask the question, what do I really want to do with my life? What impact do I really want to have with my life? And how would I create an extraordinarily original company to enable me to do just that? Right. And all these great things come from, as you say, Michael, the imagination. You know, I think you reference like Microsoft and Apple, all creations of the imagination. You know, of course, so absolutely. Imagination is more important than knowledge, um, Einstein said. Imagination, that's why they call them imagineers. So our imagination needs to be fed it needs to be um, stimulated, and that's what I do in the dreaming room. And nobody's ever done it this way before. And I've been working in the dreaming room while I've been working on the dreaming room in my past 32 dreaming rooms since I had my first dreaming room in December of 2005 and getting it ready to scale. And that means that I'll not be doing it Somebody else will, a dreaming room facilitator who has learned the system right. of producing the re- result that the dreaming room is there to produce. That's fantastic. And this type of dreaming that we're talking about, Michael, uh, you mentioned like it's seen in the manuscript. Is, we're not talking daydreaming. We're talking, you mentioned in the book, intentional dreaming. Absolutely. In fact, um, this whole new process I've been developing in the dreaming room is really quite extraordinary. And I call it organizing for growth. Uh So I call it the organizing for growth program. And the first step of three critical steps in organizing for growth is intentional dreaming. The second is intentional organization. And the third is intentional growth. So what you do in the intentional dreaming phase is to truly begin to break down all the barriers um, to accessing your imagination and to begin to ask as you look around the world what's missing in this picture you begin to see things that break down as you begin to see people in need of something or another you begin to see how the world really works you begin to ask this truly entrepreneurial question what's missing in this picture and if i could provide what's missing in this picture then i could produce a resolution to a problem that's truly inhibiting people from experiencing a full and joyful life Absolutely. You said something very interesting in, in the new book, Michael, that in the beginning of our lives we're told to 
uh, stop dreaming or stop imagining, you know, and that's not how something great is created, you know. So it's just interesting. It's almost a cultural problem. I remember as being a small kid, you know, told constantly to stop daydreaming, you know, and uh, that's not how something great is created, is it? No, it's not. It's not. It's remarkable, in fact, that we persist in that with kids. But essentially, um, when kids dream, they get into trouble. When kids come to us with a great idea, they diminish. We diminish that great idea and ask them to go clean their room. Right. So effectively, we're constantly trying to train our children to be good citizens. That is, good employees, mm-hmm. good workers. When in fact, we've already seen in your life and my life that in fact being a good employee is not the greatest thing in the world to achieve, but being a great entrepreneur who invents the world is truly something to be desired. But we don't know how to do that, and that's my mission. My mission, my my complete focus in these years of my life is to truly awaken the entrepreneur within the world and to teach people, to inspire people, to train people, to coach people, to mentor people, and consult with people on how to develop the skills that are absolutely essential to creating something, a company, that works better than any other. I mean, truly like Michael, you're having people stretch their imagination and to dream even bigger than what they were previously doing. Absolutely. And make it constructive, uh, of course. Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm actually saying that people don't fail because they dream too big. People fail because they dream too small. People fail because they don't rise above where their experience would lead them. People fail because they don't truly begin to dare to um, imagine something that they've never um, actually imagined before. And as I bring people into the dreaming room, as people participate with me, they begin to experience something they have never experienced, or if they had experienced, they'd experienced it years ago, but in some way lost the ability to dream. So it's a remarkable thing. I never would have told you I'd be doing it, but in fact I see it as the absolutely essential piece to anybody who wants to do anything Uh, let alone by a franchise, the beginning of that process is to dream. You know, it's really like an awakening. I mean, in life, there's just so much that can just, you know, I guess sort of beat you down a little bit. You know, life's not easy, and there's work, and there's family, and, and, um, you know, I guess over time that maybe you just don't have the time or or, or just forget about something simple like dreaming. So you're really just reintroducing it to people, kind of waking them up again, so to speak. Well, I'm reintroducing the question, what in the hell am I here for? What is my life? And time goes on for all of us, and it's tick-tock, tick-tock, and time goes on, and I simply become immersed in all of the doing it, doing it, doing it that I've committed myself to. And I never stop to really ask, is this really what I want? Is this really what I want to do? Is this really the entire purpose of my life? Is this really uh, going to give me um, the experience that I truly um, am hungry for, the, the joy that I truly am missing right now? What in the world am I doing with myself? And I'm su- simply suggesting, without asking that question, in a very, very provocative way, people miss 
the most extraordinary opportunities that they will never see until they begin to ask the question, then who am I? What do I want? Where am I going? And these questions begin to provoke some very, very serious introspection. And that's critical for anybody, anybody who is, as you say, sitting there about to think about going off on their own, about buying a business, about buying a franchise, or about creating a business of their own. Critical, critical, critical. And nobody's talking about it. Right. So, yeah, so it's a critical element to entrepreneurial success, Michael. All this dreaming, uh, I think you mentioned in the manuscript, it gives you uh, fuel to stay up late and uh, get up early in the morning. That's where the juice comes from. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine Michael Dell creating Dell Computer? I mean, you think about that. He, you know, he was a he was a college student <laughs> right, um, who began to diddle with this idea, the idea, the big idea, the great idea, the great result, and he created this stunning company, this extraordinary company that does what it does in a way that nobody else imagined it could be done taking a commodity, a computer, and turning it into a product, a true invention, the way in which Dell provides customized computers in a standardized process, customized, standardized, an extraordinary idea that rules the world today. And yet you don't hear that expression in most places. And certainly you don't hear it in franchising, customized, standardized. How do you do that? Well, that requires entrepreneurial imagination and verve, and that's what creates absolutely stunning companies. So if you're going to do that, you might as well do something in the business you're about to create that truly transforms the lives of the people who buy from you. Interesting. Do you find that um, a lot of the people coming into the dreaming room initially, Michael, are a little trepidatious or afraid to dream big? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, they have no idea what's going to happen. Right. Um, it's impossible to tell them. And in fact, if I told them, I would be actually doing the opposite of what I'm there to do. So all I say to somebody is come to the dreaming room with a beginner's mind and a blank piece of paper. Right. Come with absolutely no expectation of anything. Don't come to fix your business. Don't come to invent your business. Don't come to um, do anything whatsoever about anything you know because I'm not going to deal with anything you know. I'm going to deal with everything you've not even thought about before right. in a way that you've never done it. And obviously that's the challenge because when I go into the dreaming room, I do exactly the same thing as my guests. When I go into the dreaming room, I go in with a blank piece of paper and beginner's mind. I don't go in with a turnkey answer to everybody's problems. Because, in fact, if I did that, I wouldn't be um, provoking exactly the thing I'm suggesting is essential. I'd simply be giving them an already predigested answer. That's not the purpose of the dreaming room. So it's truly a test of my ability to let go of what I've learned over the past 30 years. It's the test of my ability to actually engage with each and every single participant, individual in a dreaming room, where they are. And I have no idea who they are, where they are, before they enter the dreaming room. I don't ask them 
any questions. So I had to build the impossible system that's in fact the antithesis of a system while being an extraordinary system in the process of doing something nobody's ever done before. And that's what's such a, a, an absolute mind-blower about it. So, Michael, the people who attend in the dreaming room, there's no you know, specifications you have. You don't want an existing business owner or it, it, you know, really anybody can attend. Anybody at all who truly wants to do this thing, which is awaken the entrepreneur within. Um, they they want to create a business, but they don't know how to create a business. They got a business, but they're ha- unhappy with the business they've got. They've got a business, and they're happy with the business they've got, but they realize that they suffer from a lack of imagination. They just can't really figure out how to solve problems that are continually coming up. They can't figure out how to provide the juice that the company needs continuously in order for it to feel fresh and new and alive. They're trying to deal with all of the conditions anybody and everybody has ever had to deal with in a business, um, which is the people need stimulation, the people need imagination, the people need to be focused on what they're there to do, the people need to be inventive in order to create better ways to do it, the people need to learn how to innovate, and they don't know how to innovate. If The worst thing is they simply use the system and they never, ever, ever think outside of it. So effectively, that's what happens when you come to the dreaming room. You begin to develop muscles that have not been used before. It reminds me of the movie, uh, Michael, The Dead Poet Society, if you've ever seen it with a famous line. Oh, yeah, that was a great movie. She's the day sucking the marrow out of life, you know, and and, and they get two and a half days to do that. Yep. That's fantastic. Uh, Extraordinary movie, and everybody should go see it. I'm sure you can go to um, Blockbuster and pick up a copy. But um, that's exactly what it is, to begin to in- inspire people to be inspired themselves. Interesting. That's great. I'm sure you have uh, hundreds of stories, Michael, uh, of people going to in the dreaming room. Uh, I'm sure you have examples of people that attended and had an extraordinary transformation. You know, Maybe you can talk about one or two people that you might have helped uh, along. Oh, absolutely. Well, there there does. I've had over a thousand people in the dreaming rooms that I've done, and the dreaming rooms that I've done have really been uh, a prototype. Um, I've walked into the dreaming room wondering, what in the world am I doing here? What in the world is going to happen here? No idea of what the impact would be. No idea what the next words out of my mouth were going to be. I'd never done anything like this before. And it's just astonishing to me. Um, the kinds of things that have occurred in the dreaming room. Um, one gentleman who um, is a um, an extraordinary advisor, stock advisor, um, has written many, many books in the subject, has become extraordinarily successful, and yet he's only um, 29 years old. Wow. This gentleman was dying. He literally was dying because he felt that his life had come to an end. He couldn't imagine what he was going to do next. He put himself into a box and couldn't get out of it. And when I met him in the dreaming room, he was so depressed, um, you could feel it coming from his body. And as I began to challenge him uh, to go back to how he began his life, 
Now, understand, he's a young man, right. but he's a brilliant young man. And he started this whole career of his in his teens. He early, early, early on discovered this gift of his uh, he had and pursued it with everything he had. But he had come to an end of the road, and he had no way of even imagining how to break free of it. Well, in the dreaming room, he did. Um, the one company he had was sucking him dry um, when he walked in the door. When he left the dreaming room, he had enough energy to start six new companies in the year following leaving because his imagination just burst like out of a prison and began to see the many different options available to him. But not only was he creating six new companies in less than the year following the dreaming room, but he also discovered how to spend more time with his wife. And he and his wife developed a completely new and fresh relationship, so much so was she blown away that she came to the dreaming room herself. So understand, his whole life changed, completely changed. Now, here's an extraordinarily successful person, and you would think, looking from the outside of his life, that he had everything. But when I saw it from the inside of his life, he had absolutely nothing and less than that, and in fact, no inspiration about how to get where he was to where he couldn't even imagine he, himself to be. So what happened in his early teens was essentially an accident of genius. What happened in the dreaming room was to plug into that accident of genius and discover that he could do it at will. He'd never believed that. Suddenly he saw that, and that was a result of the dreaming room. Now, Michael, you said he started up six companies. Shouldn't you be at least part owner of about four or five of those? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely should. But it happened so fast. And who's got time? Because in the past two years, I've started up six companies of my own. There you go. So all of this is happening in the dreaming room. you got to understand, I'm 71 years old. You understand, I'm not a kid. But I have the juice and energy and imagination of a kid. And I discovered in the dreaming room what I knew when I started my first company, E-Myth Worldwide. I discovered the entrepreneurial um, thrill of inventing something out of whole cloth. You understand? I knew nothing about business when I started E-Myth Worldwide. All I knew is I had a dream, and my dream was to transform the state of small business worldwide. That's what I said to myself. I had a vision, and my vision was to invent the McDonald's of small business consulting. I had a purpose, and that was to transform the lives of every small business person, every owner of every business. If you wanted to go into business, you could suddenly do it right and the vast majority wouldn't fail. And I had a mission, and my mission was to invent a turnkey consulting system that I could teach to a relative novice who in turn could use that to transform the lives of any client at less than the cost of a minimum wage kid. So the way we've been able to work with every and any kind of small business is through a system I invented. Well, 
all of that inventiveness at the very beginning of Emeth was critical to its becoming today the largest and most successful small business development firm in the world. But something was missing, and the something was missing was the entrepreneur in me. Because once I started it, and after I developed it, I became more and more and more a manager of it. And that's not entrepreneurship. And that's what was missing. And that's what came back to me full bore when I finally brought in a CEO to grow the company and freed me to simply go out on my own to do what? To do everything that I've been doing. Absolutely. So you've had two entrepreneurial awakenings, it sounds like, in your life, Michael. I guess back when you started uh, the EMS back in, I guess it was 1977, and your experience with the uh, Dreaming Room, you, you, last time we had you on the show, you spoke about, it was a great story with your mom, how she inspired you uh, to start this whole thing. You know? Absolutely. And, and and I tell that story in my new book, Awakening. It's a great story. Yeah, it's, it's a Thank wonderful you. story. And I, I love how you even brought in um, uh, the story you tell of Arnie and how you were uh, consulting um, the gentleman Bob. I just think that's such a great story, how you two were sitting across from each other. And, uh, you know, this great thing happened just out of that, that one incident. Well, my friend Arnie, uh, not his name, right, right. owned a small ad agency. And he um, was having problems with one of his clients. He had problems with more than one of his clients. And that is um, the client didn't know what to do with the leads that Arnie Ads uh, produced. And Arnie asked me if I'd sit down with him and, 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 and see what was going on. And I said to Arnie, Arnie, I don't know anything about business. And I certainly don't know anything about high tech. This was in Silicon Valley um, in the early 70s. And Arnie said to me, for whatever reason, Michael, I think you know more than you need to know. Just do me a favor and do it. So I sat down with his client, who we'll call Bob, and um, Arnie says to us, um, listen, guys, I'm going to take off for about an hour, get to know each other. So Bob says to me, uh, Michael, what do you know about my business? And I said, Bob, nothing. And he said, well, what do you know about my product? And I said, Bob, less than that. He said, so, Michael, you don't know anything about my business and nothing about my product. How in the world can you help me? And I said, Bob, I haven't a clue, but Arnie thinks I can. <laughs> so let's figure out what's going on. And I started that conversation with two assumptions. First of all, that I didn't know anything about business. And second of all, that Arnie must because he owned one. And in that hour... Uh, the e-myth was born. In that hour, I absolutely learned that, one, I did know something about business, and that business selling is a system. And, two, I realized that the guy, Bob, who owned the business, didn't know anything about business, and it blew my mind. And I suddenly realized there was a huge opportunity there. So the entrepreneur woke up in me at exactly that moment and saw the opportunity to go to work on Bob's business, not in Bob's business, to build a turnkey selling system for Bob's business so that he could convert the leads that Arnie was creating for him. And in the process of starting that, the e-myth was born. That's a great story. Which, by the way, I'm... Now, reading again for the second time, I recommend everybody out there, it's been a while since they've read the E-Myth, to read it again. It's really a great little refresher because people seem to forget about things over time, Michael. And I've got guys, I swear, Don, uh, who tell me they pull out the E-Myth Revisited every year. Mm -hmm. One gentleman I spoke to, 
um, the founder of an extraordinary company, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, mm-hmm. who's a franchisor. Right. He credits the E-Myth with the creation of his company, and he credits the E-Myth with the continued vitalization of his company and the growth of his company. They now have um, a few more than 300 franchisees around the world. Um, the guy is less than 40. He's the CEO of this company. He started by driving a truck, picking up junk, read the book, read the E-Myth Revisited, and suddenly saw the light. And the product of that is a company which last year did $147 million in gross revenue and has the expectation of reaching a billion in revenue in the next eight years. So the man's on path, and he takes the E-Myth out every year and reads it again and insists that every one of his management team reads the book. And in fact, I'm the keynote at his uh, annual event um, in March. So I'll be in Vancouver addressing 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Right, right. The show we had last week, Michael, with uh, the CEO and president of a franchise opportunity called Desert Moon, Gary Grasso. He spoke, for, he spoke about you for like 10 minutes during the show. I mean, it's just amazing the impact that you've had in the franchise community. I mean, your well, name comes you. up every other show. Thank you. And you know, I don't know 90% of these people. So I hear, I hear for what guy, yeah. this guy says and this guy says and that guy. It's really quite extraordinary to me because I, I don't know these people. Exactly. I can't imagine, you know, what kind of fuel you have. I mean, I don't know how you go to bed at night, Michael. I mean, changing the story you told about, you know, the young gentleman, you know, being depressed and stuff like that. I mean, uh, the kind of fuel that you must get from that kind of situation must be incredible for you. It is. It's absolutely extraordinary. And um, life is simply an array of infinite options. And they're continually showing up. They're constantly, constantly, constantly showing up. I can't imagine how anybody could feel um, limited or um, deprived of opportunity when there is so much more opportunity than any single one of us could possibly deal with. And I see it every single day in my mind. There's one, there's one, there's one. Why doesn't anybody do that? Why doesn't anybody do that? It's extraordinary when you begin to experience the entrepreneur within, and anybody, any single person on the face of this earth can experience it if they begin the process right. And that's what I'm committed to. Absolutely. And the title is great, too, Michael. You know, how you added, in addition to how ordinary people create extraordinary companies without any experience to guide them. You were one of those people. Um, I think you referenced Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, uh, Michael Dell. I mean, all these guys really didn't have this significant experience in business. It was all based on a dream or their imagination. Exactly. They had no experience in business. Bill Gates wasn't a business guy. Right. Bill Gates didn't work for a living. Bill Gates went to Harvard and then dropped out. Um, Michael Dell didn't have any experience when he started his business. Nobody, no great entrepreneur, has necessarily had any business experience at all. They simply imagined a result that they saw was absolutely needed in the world. And then they invented the answer to that problem in a a business. Well, anybody can do that. And in the book, Awakening the Entrepreneur Within, I take you step by step by step through the 
golden process mm-hmm. through which any company can be started from scratch in your garage. And I'm essentially saying, if your car is parked in your garage, move it out and start a business. Exactly, absolutely. <laughs> it seems this like book, Michael, top, yeah, top entrepreneurs are never satisfied. I mean, in Chapter 3 of your book, I thought it was great. Uh, you, you, you talk about you woke up one day and, and you had nothing to do. Personally, I mean, that's my dream, to wake up one day and have nothing to do, but just for a day before I get back to business. But, uh, you know, of course, yourself being a top entrepreneur, you, you know, you just weren't satisfied with that. Uh, you know, you had to, you know, take that next step and, you know, and, and do something great again, and that's what you did, obviously, with this book. Yeah, well, and, and you got to understand, when I say I had nothing to do, I had everything to do, but I didn't have to do it. Right. In other words, I didn't have to go out and earn a living anymore. True. But I do. I didn't have to go out and speak anymore, but I do continuously. I didn't have to go out and write another book. Uh, My books are among the top five business books ever published Mm -hmm. in the world. E-Myth Revisited sells more books every year than it sold before. It's the most extraordinary phenomenon. So I didn't have to do anything. There's nothing that caused me to go out and create the dreaming room other than my fertile imagination. Mm-hmm. And I'm simply saying, what an extraordinary place to live in the imagination. Because one can begin to imagine a world unlike the world we live in and then take it upon yourself to invent it. And that's all it is, inventing it. Everybody invents every single day of their life. The problem is most of us invent the past. Mm-hmm. True. I'm about inventing the future. Right. And this book precedes the E-Myth, Michael, so I guess everybody who has read the E-Myth is going to have to read Awakening the Entrepreneur Within as well. Um, Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was interesting, Michael. I saw you in um, in another uh, presentation once you referred to uh, Chris Dramerti and how he stated we're born to climb, but uh, most of us just stay in the valley and we're warned not to climb the mountain. I thought that was interesting because I think it's so true of our culture as well. You know. Well, yeah. In, in, in Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. Mm. And the tall poppy syndrome, don't stick up above the rest right? because we'll chop you down. Exactly. Well, in the United States, we like to stand up above the rest. We love that experience of being the raw, um, amazing individual. But still, even though we profess we love that, um, we don't take kindly to people who break out of where we live. Because essentially what it says about us. So we don't like people to challenge the status quo. We don't like people in companies to challenge the status quo. But if you look at McDonald's, the most extraordinary innovations at McDonald's were created by the franchisees, not the parent company. And that's really quite remarkable. So how do you build a system that requires absolute commitment and at the same time creates room for innovation? It's the biggest single challenge for the franchisee of the f- franchisor of the future. Right. How do you create um, creativity in your environment at the same time create orchestration in the environment? And franchisors who do not address that issue 
will discover that, in fact, they're not going to be attracting entrepreneurs because no entrepreneur wants to give up his or her imagination and inventiveness, become controlled by a system that is so rigid that they can't invent. And therefore, most franchisers will not derive the benefit from all of that invention that must happen for the franchise to continually improve and grow. That's interesting. What, what's what's next, Michael? I mean, I understand that there's going to be a book signing tour. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I've, I'm going out to 26 cities starting this month. That's great. Um, I'm then going out to uh, 1,200 more um, by webinar uh, to bring the um, new book and the, the, the idea of the age of the new entrepreneur to everyone. I'm launching my new website, awakeningtheentrepreneur.com, and on that you'll see a host of other business ventures that I'm deeply involved in, uh, one called clubenetwork.com. That's club E as in entrepreneurnetwork.com, and that is both online and on-site because we're opening up club E's, club entrepreneurs, uh, throughout the United States. We have two in Phoenix, one in Tempe, one in Boulder, one in Denver. There will be New York opening up in May, Washington, D.C. opening up in May. We expect to open up 52 cities this year. And that's a club that young entrepreneurs or old entrepreneurs or any entrepreneur can go to once a month to hear an extraordinary entrepreneur speak of his or her success and to give them insight into how entrepreneurs think, feel, and do whatever they do to create a community of entrepreneurs. So Club E Network, clube.com, is really the um, social network, the MySpace for entrepreneurs. And you'll see that on my new website. There's also a company called Sonyari, which has a motto called Earn While You Learn and Grow, and it provides people who want to become entrepreneurs with business opportunities without any investment. All they need to do is to refer friends to these opportunities, and they earn a living while they're learning the skills needed to start their own new business and grow that business. So all kinds of stuff I'm doing. That's fantastic. Wow, that's great. A lot of different things to give people information, knowledge, and, and probably most importantly, to motivate. You got Absolutely. it. Absolutely. What's the best way to get more information, Michael? Is, is someone go to In the Dreaming Room? We actually have that link up on yep. the website. Yep, and my next well. Dreaming Room is March 28th, 29th, and 30th. That's fantastic. So you go to www.inthedreamingroom.com, inthedreamingroom.com. But better yet, what I'm going to ask everybody to do is to go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com and buy my new book immediately before it hits the stores on March 4th, and you'll get a 30% savings at Amazon. Buy 10 books, give away 9, read the other, and I'm telling you, you will start an entrepreneurial revolution in your life and among your friends. And we have that link up on our website as well as we're speaking, Mike, you know, so Super. Uh, that's fantastic. But I think you're great. I know Don thinks you're great, you know, and one of my dreams is to shake hands with you one day. So Well, thank you. Do that you're still on top of your game, Michael, better than ever. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. You're great. Take care. Take care, Michael. Take care, Michael. Bye-bye.
Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a very special edition of Franchise Interviews, where for over 11 years now, we've been asking the franchipreneurs of all in one. I'm your host, Marty McDermott. I'm the president of Franchise Interviews, and we have a great show this evening. We're going to hear our interview with Dr. Scott Shane, and we start our show discussing his popular book, The Illusions of Entrepreneurship, where Dr. Scott Shane challenges the myths we hold about entrepreneurs in America. Then in part two, we discuss his fascinating book, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders, and we discuss how your DNA affects your workplace behavior. And then we wrap up the show with our interview on New York's WVOX, Go Brand Yourself. And let's go right into our interview with the very popular Scott Shane. Good. How about yourself? Good, good. Uh, Dr. Shane, uh, joining us is my co-host, Don Johnson, and Don is the president of Diamond Financial Services. And I know you wanted to say hi, Don, to Dr. Shane. Hi, Dr. Shane. We uh, really, uh, you know, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you know, Martin, I've been looking forward to this a few weeks uh, with the book you wrote, really some new information for us. So, uh, uh, you know, we look forward to speaking to you. Thanks for coming on. Great, thanks. Dr. Shane, we always like to start off by asking our guests, where are you calling from this morning? Uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, great. How's the weather there today? Actually, it's quite beautiful today. Good, good. Well, September's like that, I know, in Ohio. You know, we've actually had a lot of franchises from the Ohio area, haven't we, Don? Yeah, franchisees, yeah. you know, doing the show over the last state. two right. years. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Shane, how did you get involved or interested in entrepreneurship? Well, it's funny that uh, that, that you say that because I'm the child, actually, of uh, two entrepreneurs. And oh, interesting. You probably don't know this, but I actually have an area of research where I look at genetic factors that lead people to uh, become entrepreneurs. There's actually some evidence that there's that uh, our genes affect that, so it's right. quite possible. That's why I got interested. That's interesting. You know, this is one of the questions or debates we had. Uh, we did a blog a long time back, Dr. Shane, uh, as far as you know, can entrepreneurship be taught or are entrepreneurs born? You know, so um, it's interesting that you actually mentioned that. That's the first I've heard of it too. As far as right. uh, you know, you know, could be in your genes. I guess maybe my dad will be happy about that. Uh, he's, owned, he's owned some businesses and has done pretty well. He was a pilot, but he's uh, he's, he's done some other things. I'll have to talk to my dad about that. Right. Uh, Dr. Shane, why, why did you write the book, The Illusions of Entrepreneurship? Well, I actually have been researching uh, entrepreneurship for um, close to 20 years now, and what had happened was I started seeing things that I thought I knew to be true, and when mm-hmm. I'd investigate them, I realized that um, I was wrong. And I thought, well, you know, if I have this list of things that I thought were correct, and it turns out when I looked at the data carefully that I was wrong, probably a lot of other people uh, had the same illusions that I did. And, you know, I picked up enough of these to think it was worthy of a book. Right, absolutely. That's interesting. If you, you know, and I read how you just just coming across a lot of people didn't have the correct information, the facts as they're starting a business, which obviously right. could be crucial. I mean, you got to be. Yeah, I mean, you have to be on your game. I mean, you have to make sure that business plan is solid. Uh, I mean, the, the odds are against you to begin with starting out. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you have uh, you know wrong information, I guess you go down the wrong path pretty quickly. So it's you know, it's interesting how you keyed in on that and uh, you know saw that as an opportunity. And then uh, the other thing is that entrepreneurs actually tend to be over optimistic. We have some evidence right. that that's true. And so what happens is if you've got wrong information out there combined with a tendency to be over optimistic, you can really get a lot of people into trouble. And you know, people are investing real money that they can mm-hmm. lose uh, in this. And you want them to actually know the right odds. There's nothing wrong with taking a risk if you know the right odds. Right. But what you don't want to do is take the risk thinking, you know, you're going to be really successful when the odds are really against you. That's true, yeah. I mean, a lot more people today, Dr. Chain, are using their retirement funds, you know, to get into these things, you know. So uh, it, it, the book really does make you, I think, you know, think twice uh, about going into your own business. That's for sure. 
We talked that, uh, about that in, in you know, segment one, Marty, about right. uh, people going into business. You know, make sure you have that cash reserve. Make sure you have plenty of working capital. I mean, that's a whole other side uh, conversation, but one important step of the whole process of starting up a business. Um, uh, Dr. Shane, who, who should read the book? Well, I think there, it's useful for a lot of uh, different audiences. First, I think it's useful for anybody who's starting a business or thinking of starting a business because, uh, you know, they probably want to get the facts right and not have a bunch of illusions about um, things like where they're going to finance uh, their business. You don't want a bunch of people thinking, oh, they're going to get venture capital money when they're really not. Right. Uh, so entrepreneurs are, are one set. Another side is um, the investors, the people who are putting money in, because you don't want people thinking that um, – their chances are really high of making a huge amount of money off of the typical entrepreneur and then, of course, thinking that the entrepreneur they backed is somehow the real lemon out there because they didn't do as well as some expectation. And then I think um, uh, policymakers are another important audience because we've got a lot of governments, the local government, state governments, federal government, all trying to encourage economic growth through entrepreneurship, right. and the key is they've got to understand what kind of entrepreneurship is generating jobs and generating wealth. Otherwise, they're just going to waste their tax dollars. For our audience, um, Dr. Shane, what questions does the illusions of entrepreneurship address? Again, Don and I both read the book. but um... Well, so, so one question is, what does it take to make a new business successful? And one of the things that the book points out is that a lot of the things that we believe, um, that it's a lot about us as people, um, are inaccurate, that things like the kind of business opportunity you have and the industry that you're in account for a lot of performance. And I think what happens to a lot of people is we have this belief as human beings that we want to over-ascribe um, our performance to things that are about ourselves and not about things we can't really control. We can't change our industry very well. We can't change our business opportunities very well. So we like to think that it's us that matters. And it turns right. out that, sure, individuals matter, but the, the business opportunity matters um, too, to a great extent. And being able to pick that and what the book tries to do is help people see, well, what is it about a good opportunity uh, what is it about an industry that makes it good for startups? The other thing is that um, people make a lot of mistakes that could easily be corrected. They go after the wrong kind of financing. They don't do a business plan well. They don't form a good team. They don't set up the right legal structure. And one of the things that the book tries to point out are kind of the easy-to-fix mistakes, the things that are under right. your control so that you can fix the odds. I mean, you can't decide whether, you know, your particular product is suddenly going to become the hottest thing ever, but you can avoid making a, you know, mistake about getting, you know, your cash flow wrong because you don't have um, a financial structure in place to manage cash flow. Um, and then I think that the other thing is that I think is very useful is for people to get a realistic understanding of where money comes from for financing businesses, because I think people um, labor under a lot of illusions about where that capital comes from. And one of the goals of the book is to say, hey, look, this is how people really get money, and this is what they're going to have to do. And um, you're probably not going to get venture capital. You're probably not going to get business angel money from a lot of businesses. What you're probably going to do is um, either invest your own money or you're going to personally guarantee loans from a bank. Yeah, and that's my business, as you might have uh heard Dr. Shane and we you know our company's you know talking to many people every day across the country and there is a lot of you know, misconception uh you know sometimes people think uh you know they can you know get financing for example as long as they just have good credit but there's a lot of other things that lenders look for 
uh, you know, with getting uh, uh, financing. So we're uh, always in that, uh, you know, consulting and you're giving advice mode to people uh, and, and helping people with the whole financing part. You know, so really, so what you were just addressing is, you know, really people have to do more, due, you know, due diligence and, uh, you know, for people to uh, to do their, uh, you know, research on an industry and so forth, uh, you know, I guess you recommend that people should, uh, you know, should align themselves with consultants and specialists to help them in this process of considering starting up a business or if they decide, you know, to make sure they go about it the right way. Well, uh, you know, the, they need to get information somehow. Now, you can get you can get information by getting help from um, consultants. You could get information by kind of doing research. Uh, you could get information by you know talking to people in an industry. I think one of the um, one of the misconceptions that uh, people labor under is that entrepreneurship is easy. You can just if you got get an idea, whatever idea you get, you should just go run with it. You should go do it. There's this emphasis on being active and going and doing as opposed to thinking about whether an idea is any good. And one of the things that I think is really important that people always keep in their mind is that once you pick an idea to pursue, you basically cut yourself off from pursuing a better idea that comes along later because you've committed to one idea. And so what you probably want to do is go evaluate an idea and say, is this one really worth doing? Because if I look at it and I say, oh, it's not worthwhile, I still have the option to do a better idea when it comes along. But if I go pursue something that isn't very good, you know, I'm probably going to end up locked into kind of either trying to make a go of it and and, and, and possibly failing. Were you surprised, Dr. Shane, by uh, some of the findings uh, during the research phase of, of writing the book? Uh, absolutely. I was particularly surprised about things like how people really finance businesses. I was surprised at how frequently debt is used because we have this um, view somehow that people get equity a lot. Um, and they think it's that you know a small number of businesses get equity and they get written about a lot. But um, getting outside equity is pretty rare. So the financing stuff surprised me. The um, effect of uh, how important industry is and what industry you're in, that surprised me a lot too. I thought it was important, but I didn't think it was uh, as important. I think that um, what also surprised me a lot was how many things matter that um, are easy to fix and yet people still make those mistakes because they're they just don't have the right information. I, I you know, as a, an economist, you sort of think that um, the system works pretty well and that you know there's not going to be a lot of things you could do to improve just because um, uh, you didn't know. You know, we tend right. to think people generally know what they're doing, and then it's things beyond their control that, that affect their performance. <laughs> I, I was amazed, uh, Dr. Shane, at the uh, self-employment rates. You know, everyone's always talking about the rise of entrepreneurship here in America, you know, and, and, and looking at uh, uh, the other countries, I mean, compared to uh, the United States. I mean, I think Turkey might have been one of them, and Mexico was another. Um, were you surprised there? Um, again, I see a lot of uh, textbooks. Again, you're a professor, uh, you know, talking about the rise of entrepreneurship here in the U.S. Um, yeah, so, so there, yeah. Were, there were two parts of that that were very surprising to, to me. So it turns out that the, the U.S. isn't very entrepreneurial by a number of measures, self-employment, number of businesses that get created every right. year, capita, that kind of thing. And that it used to be much more so that we're on a, um, a declining uh, a trend. And also the fact that places where we think of that have a lot of high growth entrepreneurial activity within the U.S., places like Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. they actually aren't very high on 
the total amount of entrepreneurial activity and places that have um, kind of many fewer high-growth startups actually tend to have a higher proportion of people uh, running their own businesses. And, and it's interesting, but if you kind of explore it a little bit, you realize that it makes a lot of sense that um, a lot of times what people are doing is they're starting businesses because they don't have a better option and that the businesses they're starting aren't particularly uh, successful and that as countries get better and you've got a lot of economic growth, people opt in to go into work for somebody else because things are better. And you can think of this as Walmart is a lot more competitive than a lot of of the small uh, independent businesses that it's essentially replaced. And Walmart doing that and replacing a you know, grocer and replacing a florist and replacing the bike store and replacing all those things, that's actually lowering the rate of entrepreneurship over time. The other thing um, that happens is you think about a company like Google and you think about how they're providing all these high salaries and all these good perks to people. And a lot of people, when those are their job options, will say, well, maybe I shouldn't start a business if, you know, I can get free sushi for lunch uh, at Google. Right. Are are there temporary uh, ups and downs uh, in, in what you're speaking about, uh, Dr. Shane, like in a down economy or uh, heavy layoffs? Uh, I mean, might be a spike in, uh, uh, you know, people starting up businesses. Uh, I guess yeah. it could go up and down, but the overall theme, and I was surprised, you, you just think with the you know, increasing population, there's going to be more people starting businesses, more, more entrepreneurs, but you just found you know, really the opposite. Oh, well, let, let me uh, be clear. No, no, this was on a per capita basis that we see the decline. So the population, in an absolute sense, we have more, uh, more entrepreneurs, but as a percentage of the population, it's shrinking. Uh, right. And... and Yes, there are ups and downs. I mean, this is the overall trend. It, that one of the things that's interesting is that down economies tend to ha- cause a spike in the increase in the amount of entrepreneurship. And one of the reasons right. why is that when people are unemployed, their odds of starting a business go up a lot. And so when you get more people being uh, unemployed, you know, you see a spike in the aggregate statistic. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. And, um, uh and I just wanted to ask for a quick backtrack a little bit. Um, what is your definition of an entrepreneur? A person who starts their own business. So really as simple as that. As simple okay. as that. Uh, this is all very interesting. And, you know, Marty and I being in the franchise industry, I just want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the growth of franchising uh, you know, over the last uh, decade, Dr. Shane? Well, what I think is interesting, I, you know, you probably know, I've I've written on the, the franchise industry, yeah. um, particularly from the point of view of, uh, of uh, franchisors. And yeah. What's interesting is that there seems to have been a plateauing of kind of the franchise activity, um, and it hasn't been spreading as much um, as it had, say, over the decade um, uh, before that. And and it seems a little bit like franchising is big. It's a big chunk of the economy, but it's hard to break into a lot of new industries successfully, industries where franchising historically didn't work. You get a few of them where that tends to happen, but for the most part, franchising seems to work in certain sectors of the economy well, other sectors of the economy not that well, and we aren't getting the huge growth in that activity that, that we you know, got 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, Marty, last week, remember, we talked about uh, how, how doctor's offices, you know, chiropractors and, and specialists right. are starting to franchise their concept. I thought that was pretty interesting, so maybe, Dr. Shane, that's an example uh, the, you know, the jury's still out if franchising could be successful 
for, uh, say, podiatrists or chiropractors or, you know, the specific niches, uh, dentists uh, in franchising. It's kind of an interesting uh, comparison, right? Right. And, you know, in, in, in the book, um, you know, that I did uh, from Ice Cream to the Internet on, on franchising, one of the things that's pretty um, clear is that these medical areas, where we've seen this before, we had hemorrhoid clinics as one yeah. area. Good where example. We saw We saw. Um, uh, we've had dentists actually for quite a while without kind of a huge growth in in that activity. One thing right. that's difficult about these things is that it's hard to sell them to a lot of people because you can't really sell the franchise to somebody where there's no dentist involved, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to have some uh, right. professional that's providing um, that service. Right. And in fact, um, one of the areas that um, could possibly um, see some of this uh, franchising growth are these quick care clinics mm-hmm. um, where people have toyed with the model of, well, should they franchise that or should they own them directly? And the big question is, well, is the market big enough, right? If I'm going to have an right. ice cream franchise, pretty much anybody who wants to run their own business, I could sell that to. If I'm going to have a quick care clinic and I'm going to need um, you know, to have doctors or nurse practitioners involved, can I sell it to a third party who's going to hire those people or do I need to sell it to them? And if I'm selling it to them, is the market big enough? Um, um, you know, Industries like, uh, uh, like senior care and just services in general just mm-hmm. had a lot of big growth in, in, in franchising. I, I guess franchising kind of rode the tide of the you know growing uh, you know population, not the you know the uh, the older population. Uh, so it's been pretty interesting. That's a good the senior care though is a good example of of something where it works pretty well because you don't need a tremendous amount of technical expertise mm-hmm. to provide that service. That's sure. different right. than a dentist, right? I mean, you right. need a lot of technical knowledge to provide that service. Right. Good, good point. What advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur looking to buy a franchise or start their own business? You touched on a few things, but I'm sure you have a few more, right. Dr. Chain. Well, so one thing that, that um, I think is important that people consider that's actually often not thought about enough and, and, and directly relates to franchising is thinking about the decision about buying versus starting from scratch. Um, you know, one of the things that um, we see is that businesses, when you buy a business from somebody else, those businesses tend to perform better than when people start businesses from scratch. And the question is, can people buy them at, at the right price so that the numbers work just as well as starting from scratch? Um, now, now, is that buying an existing business or buying a startup franchise concept? Buying, buying an existing business. Okay. Right? And so one of the things then about, about – um, and about that is you, one of the advantages is if you've got a business and somebody else has run that business um, – there's some evidence that the business works. And the same thing is true when you look at uh, a franchise, right, which is that if, a, if you're really talking about buying a franchise where there's some evidence that that business is ongoing and been successful for a number of years, you're going to get a real advantage. Now, again, it's always a question of making the numbers work because it's more expensive than starting a business from scratch. It could be a better business, but the numbers work worse for you because you didn't get it at a, at a good enough uh, price to make it work. Um, so the first point that I'd make is that it's really important for people to actually not just immediately um, fall into, I'm starting a business, I'm starting from scratch, I'm starting with my idea, um, and I'm going to go from there, you know, buying either a franchise or a, um, uh, a an existing business from uh, an independent, you know, is certainly worth considering. The second thing is that it makes a huge difference when you're buying a franchise, whether 
the franchisor is new or the franchisor is well-established because a lot of the value in um, the franchise is that that system is there, it's the system works, the system's there to support you. And one of the problems with a new franchise is that you can certainly have some that will turn out great, but a lot of them just fail. And then if that happens, that's not the greatest uh, arrangement for uh, the franchisee. That's interesting. One of the things we were talking about earlier, Dr. Shane, uh, in segment one is, is the importance of having a niche in the market. And I recall in the book you mentioned that I think it was like 30% of the uh, uh, people starting up a business didn't believe they had a competitive edge. Were you surprised about that? I mean, I was. Yes, I, I was. I was actually very surprised at the idea that people would be willing to start a business for which they didn't believe they had a competitive advantage because it makes you wonder what their logic was for thinking that business right. would be sustained and would keep going. Another thing that's, that's surprising that's probably related to that is a lot of people start businesses um, and it takes them a long time to get that business going. And I think what may be happening is that people start without a competitive advantage and a year later they realize that, you know, it's not enough. They haven't gotten that business up and running and they probably won't because they realize later they didn't have a competitive advantage. Exactly. Interesting. So what are some other industries, Dr. Sheen, uh, that are popular uh, for startups? Where should people be looking? Well, this actually goes to a really important question, which is that when you ask the question, what's popular, and you don't want to couple that with where should people be looking, because right. in fact, it's the most popular industries that tend to be the worst. And Interesting. Right. You know, one of the statistics I've got in the book, which is, is very really frightening, is that the rate at which people start businesses in industry, right, how, how popular that industry is, is correlated 0.77, a really high correlation with the failure rate in that industry. People systematically pick the industries uh, right. where their odds are most against them, and it's because they're easy to enter. So, you know, when you say what's popular, I would say, you know, there's a bunch of things that are popular. It's personal right. services, it's retail, it's construction, but that's not good. And the, the the difficult part is that it turns out that most businesses um, are not great businesses to start and that if you want to start a good business, it's going to be harder to find and there's going to be a lot more obstacles um, that are going to suggest that maybe you don't you don't want to pursue that and, and make it a higher hurdle for you to overcome to say, oh, yeah, it's worth trying. And I guess a popular industry is something like food, which is what, Marty, maybe 40%, 50% of the whole franchising industry. It's something easy to go into. Right. Um, you know, I guess that's a good example, uh, Dr. Shane, of someone choosing food because it's there, 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 there's so many food franchises, but maybe there's a higher chance of failure with certain concepts maybe. Right, and so and 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 food is a good example of something. Any kind of food and retail are in um, industries with very high failure rates, and this is where, you know, people might really seriously benefit from thinking about buying a franchise from an established system because your odds are so much against you in starting um, a business from scratch in those industries. Now there may be other industries where. You know, franchising offers much less of an advantage, and startups do you know particularly well. A kind of the opposite to that might be uh, uh, computer-related uh, businesses, where right. 
startups actually tend to do incredibly well. Actually, a quarter of the past 25 years, a quarter of all the Inc. 500 companies are computer-related, um, and there's very little kind of uh, value-added typically provided by franchisors there. And so that, the balance is probably going to be different in different industries. But, you know, food is the, the, the poster child for industries where it's hard to do well as an entrepreneur. And uh, the computer and, and related services to that industry is interesting because mo most people can uh, probably just dip into that type of franchise fresh with no experience at all, which is what franchising is all about. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a business ownership experience. But uh, uh, So I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, industry you brought up. Uh, why, why do people start businesses in, in general? Well, well, here's an interesting fact. So the number one reason why people start businesses is because they want independence. They don't want to have a boss. They want to be uh, in charge. And, and what's problematic is that that tends not to be something that motivates people to perform very well financially. Um, it's, it's sort of, you know, if my idiot boss can do this, I can do it too. So right. I'm going to go right. uh, and do it because I don't like working for that idiot. And the, the problem is that that generally is not something that makes people uh, very successful, but it's the dominant reason why people do it. And how many jobs do new businesses create? I guess you talked about that well, in your book, of course. Right. So so this is something that's um, kind of, on average, not very many. So if we look at businesses that are under two years of age in the United States, they account for 1% of the jobs in this country, um, which is minuscule. And one of the oh. things that gets lost in this discussion always about uh, job creation and entrepreneurship is that small business does not mean new business. Right, a new a small a, a small business could be quite old. You can have a hundred year old small business. A small business is a function of the business's um, size, and because so few new businesses are successful, it takes a while, and they don't start with very many jobs. It takes a while for you to get any of them generating many jobs, and when they do, it's a small percentage of them that accounted for most of that uh, job growth. So you're saying one percent. Of all the new businesses starting nationwide, whether it's a franchise, non-franchise, just all uh, you know businesses, and uh, you're saying just one percent of the total jobs is, is just created from that. I mean, I, I mean, I thought that was was, was higher as well. One percent of all employment in the private sector in this country are businesses that are two years old or younger. That's amazing, right? isn't it? That's and, incredible. And to get to get to a point where the majority of jobs are in businesses that are um, uh, it, businesses that are young. You have to define young as 10 years old or um, uh, younger. And the, the thing about 10 years old, right, is, I mean, if you just use the analogy of children, you realize that 10 is not a newborn, right? 10 is not new. 10 is actually fairly old, and there's been a lot of businesses that have failed by the time you get out there. In fact, close to three-quarters of all the startups are gone by the time a business reaches uh, its 10th anniversary. Wow, it's, it's all, all interesting information, statistics. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Scott Shane, wrote the book, uh, The Illusions of Entrepreneurship, and earlier you talked about you're, that you were surprised uh, when you're doing your research on how people are financing their startup business. How, how, you know, maybe let's talk about that in a little more detail. How, how do entrepreneurs finance their startups? Well, the main way that people finance the startups that most, I think most entrepreneurs don't take enough into consideration is with their savings, right? That they don't get money from anywhere else. That is 
the vast majority of people, that's how it's financed. And so the idea that you're going to raise capital is something that only matters for a minority of uh, entrepreneurs. The second fact that's important is that businesses that are four years old or, or younger, the majority of the money they get is debt, not equity. And so we have this uh, illusion somehow that you can't borrow money for young businesses. In certain industries, in certain sectors, that's very difficult to do. But in general, it's not that hard to do. And in fact, the number one source for capital for businesses that are young are actually banks. And that's something that, that uh, people forget. They say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to friends and family. I'm going to go to business angels. I'm going to go to venture capitalists, um, all those things. You, I'm going to go you know, get a co- corporate strategic partner. I'm going to get all those things. You bundle all those things up together, and they still finance uh, fewer businesses than uh, young businesses than banks do. Um, but the, the, the catch, the piece that's important is that most new businesses do not get financing on the merits of the business itself. Most of that borrowing is, is somehow personally guaranteed by the entrepreneurs. And, and so one of the things that I think most people are not taking enough into consideration is that the normal financing pattern for uh, a new business is I use my own money, I transition into somebody else's money that I have personally guaranteed, and then if my business is successful, I can transition from that to borrowing on the merits of the business itself. But that's much further downstream, and right. my personal credit and my money are very important in my ability to finance mm. my own business. Well, I'm not surprised what you're saying, because yeah. as time goes on, you're reading more about people ha- having more debt and less savings, so it is tougher for someone to use their savings to start right. up. and. That's all I do uh, are small business loans, so I'm glad to hear your research is kind of backing up my industry and that more people need to go to a bank to get financing because, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, our uh, you know, numbers are increasing as well. I'm just surprised maybe there's not a few more people who are, uh, you know, lining themselves with those angel investors or private investors' partners. Uh, I tend to think there's more of that going on, but you're showing it's actually there's, you know, there's not, not, not that much of that activity, Dr. Shane, right? Right, and part of this is that very few businesses um, actually stand a chance of generating the kind of growth that would provide sufficient returns to an equity uh, investor. Um, it's just actually pretty rare. So, in fact, I think it's important to keep in mind is what the typical business looks like. Half of all businesses that get started project um, sales of $100,000 in five years. Now, if you're starting with half of businesses like that, you're talking about you're getting down to a very small number of businesses that are planning to generate the kind of growth it's going to take to interest investors. And so you certainly have them, but they're, they're a small portion of the total. And banks and other kinds of sources of debt financing can finance operations in a way that uh, makes sense where people could service debt, but they but the business would not generate a high return on the equity that was invested in it. And I definitely, conf- uh, you know, confirm with you that uh, th- that a lot of the banks we work with do look more at the individual, the strength of the individual, rather than, say, for example, the franchise business are starting, which is important. But most loans get approved based on you know the individual and their credit and their net worth and 
uh, you know, liquidity and past experience and so forth. Other characteristics, Dr. Sheens, of uh, successful entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of times, you know, Don and I have read articles, you know, talking about the importance of uh, persistence and, you know, motivation and all that other stuff. Have you come across anything like that in your research? So, so here's the thing that we've, we've tended to find in doing the research is that characteristics of people seem to explain more about their decision to be an entrepreneur uh-huh. um, than they do about performance as an entrepreneur. And so people, if they are um, kind of really want independence, they tend to start uh, businesses, but that uh, desire for independence doesn't really translate into a much of a performance um, effect. In, it turns out that there's very few of the personality characteristics that people describe as being so important for the performance of entrepreneurs really uh, pan out. Um, you know, persistence is a good example. People say persistence. Um, that's an important characteristic. It's important in the sense that it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. There's lots right. of, right, if you're not persistent, you're, you're not going to do very well. But being persistent is only going to keep you in the game, and there's lots of persistent people um, who fail. You know, I like to use the example that in the year that Bill Gates started Microsoft, there were a whole bunch of people probably just as persistent as he was who started businesses, and none of them created a business like Microsoft, right? right? And in fact, a very large number of those persistent people failed. So your persistence isn't going to account for the performance. We like to think that, you know, if we have the right stuff, we're going to do well. The problem is that really having a good business opportunity, managing it well in an attractive industry actually tends to work a little bit better. Fascinating. So it's the quality of the service or brand. Um, An industry, right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that people actually greatly underestimate, right, is thinking about the basic question of why the world needs this business, right? right? You know, most businesses that people start, one of the reasons that they fail is because they're unnecessary. The world doesn't need yet another of that business, right? If that business is not... If the business doesn't solve a problem that was unsolved before or doesn't solve it in a way better than existing businesses solve it, there's no reason to have that new business. And most people don't go into entrepreneurship thinking about that. They actually think you know, differently. They say, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to have the same product, and I'm going to sell it to similar customers as my previous employer. Um, and the problem with that is, um, there's really no advantage over that previous employer. So the previous employer's business was successful, but the, the, the new one that starts to, to compete doesn't do as well. What's, what's next for you, Dr. Shane, after after this book? I know you're doing a lot of um, interviews and things like that, but what's what's in your future? More books? Well, I actually, I actually have um, re- recently uh, finished up a, another book that's going to be coming out this uh, winter on uh, angel investing that looks at um, – uh, you know what's really true and not true about angel investing, and um, how people can become successful angel investors, and how people can uh-huh. better get money from angels. Uh, that that book's called um, Fool's Gold. That's an interesting topic. Great title, and that's an yeah. area where you know, a lot of people really need to be educated in that. I know personally, I'm in the money business, but I don't really know much about that at all. Right. 
That's interesting. What's what's the best way for someone to um, buy the book, Dr. Shane, Illusions of Entrepreneurship, or any of the other? I think it's 11 other books <laughs> that you've written up to this point. Yeah, so I generally suggest that people just um, go on Amazon.com and either look okay. up uh, my name or the or the title because Amazon discounts all of those books and um, you might as well save a little money if you're going to get it. That's fantastic. Right. We're going to put some links up on our websites too as well, right, Don, on franchise interviews and also on Blog Talk. I, I know there's a big picture of uh, uh, illusions of entrepreneurship uh, on the uh, homepage of Blog Talk Radio this morning. Right. So, uh, Need a business loan? Talk to Diamond Financial Services, the experts in franchise financing nationwide. Whether you're looking to start a franchise, acquire an existing franchise, or expand your territory through opening new locations, Diamond Financial stands by your side start to finish. From pre-qualification to packaging and presenting your application to securing a financial commitment and through the loan closing process, Diamond Financial is there. While you're waiting, thousands of others are making their financial dreams come true. Don't wait any longer. Pre-qualify now by completing a confidential, no-obligation financial analysis. Let's face it, traditional banks just aren't in the business of financing small business. At Diamond Financial, we specialize in securing franchise loans from $100,000 to $3 million and equipment leasing up to $150,000. Let us help you get started. Go to www.franchisefunding.net or call 877-508-2274. That's franchisefunding.net, 877-508-2274. Franchise Interviews. For over two years now, Franchise Interviews has been giving you an up-close, behind-the-scenes look at franchising and entrepreneurship. Through our website, FranchiseInterviews.com, where you can hear and read interviews as well as get tips from some of the most successful sources in franchising. And our weekly franchise radio show, where each week you get to hear a new interview with franchisors, franchisees, franchise authors, experts, and attorneys. And our free franchise newsletter, which is a must-read for anyone looking to buy a franchise. And don't forget to listen to our podcast, Great Quotes in Franchising. For more information, go to FranchiseInterviews.com or call us at 610-905-2919. That's 610-905-2919. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Franchise Interviews, where we're asking the franchipreneur who owns one. I'm your host, Marty McDermott, with my co-host, Don Johnson. And if you've ever dreamed of owning your own business, then you've come to the right place. And as we were saying earlier, Don, we have a great show today. We're meeting with Dr. Scott Shane, author of Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders. And this is the first book to review the entire range of scientific literature on genetic effects on organizational behavior and explain in a practitioner-friendly manner how your DNA affects your workplace behavior. Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you today? Welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shane. Dr. Shane, joining us is my co-host, Don Johnson, and I know, Don, you wanted to say good morning to Dr. Shane. Dr. Shane, it's great to have you back on. We appreciate it. You're you're really uh, keeping yourself busy lately, huh? <laughs> yeah, I am. Well, that's my job. 
Well, it's, it's funny, Dr. Shane. I don't know if you remember. I know you do so many of these interviews. When we had you on the show, I guess it was about a year and a half, almost two years ago, Don, we were talking about Illusions of Entrepreneurship, which was an incredible book. You kind of hinted that you were um, interested in this topic, you know, so it was great to see that you did come out with a book, uh, you know, on, on the subject. Why did you write the book, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders? Well, it's actually something um, that I have been working on for um, several years now. So mm -hmm. at the time that I, I spoke to you before, I was actually doing research on the topic. And right. I don't know, about five years ago, I got interested in whether there's truth to the kind of statement that people make all the time that you know certain people are just born entrepreneurs. And there's actually several different scientific methods that you can actually answer um, that question uh, to see whether there is an innate component to uh, being an entrepreneur and entrepreneurial performance and aspects of entrepreneurship like identifying opportunities. Um, and I've started using those methods in doing uh, my research. And then I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of interest amongst uh, practitioners in this general uh, topic. They're the ones who are often using these terms all the time. Um, and in, in, in looking at it, I just realized that a broader book, than just entrepreneurship would be necessary because there's issues related to leadership and job satisfaction right. and financial risk-taking and um, even the choice of occupations in general. So I thought, well, a broader book, but that looked at the uh, genetic components to uh, workplace behavior would be good. And how is writing this book a, a different experience for you, you know, Dr. Shane, from from like illusions of entrepreneurship or fool's gold? Is it, is it the similar process or... Uh... A, a little different because I know you don't have a background in genetics, which I guess doesn't make a difference. But well, so so some part of it was actually uh, different, and some part was similar. I mean, anytime you you write a book that's based on kind of scholarly evidence, there's reading of that um, literature. Uh, the two big differences here were that in the other books, a very large portion of what I was writing was about my own research. Um, and here, a small portion, actually a small portion of one chapter, the chapter on entrepreneurship, was about studies that I did with, with my colleagues, and the rest was just summarizing what other people had um, done. Uh, the other difference is that the some of the research that needs to get reviewed is truly um, uh, molecular genetics work where people are trying to associate versions of specific genes with outcomes uh, like... Um, uh, whether people are engaging in uh, leadership or financial risk-taking or what have you. And that's just a little bit harder to uh, work through because I had to move myself up the learning curve in understanding that research. And what do you think people are so fascinated with this topic? We, we Don actually read one of your blogs on our show. I guess Don it was probably about like six months ago. Right. And uh, you and I were both fascinated in the topic. But why are people so interested in this topic, Dr. Shane, do you think? Well, I think I think one part of the reason that people are interested is that um, people intuitively believe that some part of what we do in our jobs and everything else in life is innate. That 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 so scientists work hard at kind of trying to document this and keep people from overstating the case. But the intuition is that everything is not environmentally determined. That there's some innate component to everything, and so people are. Um, quite interested in that. Um, I think that's that's one part of it. I think a second part of it um, that makes people interested is that it kind of suggests that down the road we're going to get better at um, 
training and incentives for people because much like people have developed personalized uh, medicine where people have a version of a disease with certain genetic makeup, they're given certain drugs and not others, there's this idea down in the future that maybe that would happen for other activities as well, that you know, this kind of person, the way we um, train them to be a leader is different than this other person. And I think intuitively a lot of people say, you know, I, go, I went to business school or I went to college and, you know, everybody, everybody's treated exactly the same way as if, you know, we just got this information and then we would all um, magically become entrepreneurs or leaders right. or, or, or what have you. And I think intuitively people are just skeptical that, that people can be treated the same way and get the same uh, uh, outcomes from it. Yeah, and that's what I got. When I was reading the book, I remember Chapter 7, Donna, you were talking about uh, Leona, who was a a girl, I guess, studying uh, leadership, and she was always fascinated in the topic and uh, wasn't very, I guess, successful as a leader. And then her friend, I think it was Susan, uh, people just followed her. Um, So I, I, I guess that's like one example of that type of situation. Right, and and I mean, people sort of this is intuitive to people, right? That everybody knows somebody that really, really wants to be a leader right. and just can't, no matter what. Exactly. It just seems that they're unsuccessful. And then there's other people who um, seem to be just naturally followed. And and what is it about them? Is it really um, their life experiences that made them so different? And the right. part that makes that kind of difficult is that we start seeing some of these patterns, you know, in little kids. And, you know, you say, okay, well, you know, there's always some learning, but but how much of, you know, a four-year-old following um, uh, other uh, four-year-olds and one four-year-old leading other four-year-olds, how much of that do we really think is the environment shaping them, right? You know, they've only had four years and they haven't had, you know, work environment experiences and these, these other things. Now, sure how their family raised them, and even experiences when you're two or three have an effect. But what people realize is, yeah, but probably there's something else. Right. <laughs> and that's, it's that something else that we, we want to know about. Yeah, it is interesting, especially when you have kids. You, you see how it changes your life. I know you went through this, Don. You know, my son, Dr. Shane, he's uh, two years old, and we could see he's kind of like a little follower, you know, um, in, in interacting with the other kids. He's not the leader of the group, you know, and you wonder, you know, is that just inborn, you know, as as your book talks about innate, you know, so it is it is a fascinating topic, that's for sure. And it's now, also interesting timing, Dr. Shane, with uh, what's going on with our country, being entrepreneurial and, you know, looking to start up their own business. We have a new generation of people being business owners, and I guess uh, this will be good. People might want to learn a little bit more about themselves and if they mm-hmm. are the right type to uh, be creative or be entrepreneurial and aggressive and start up a business. Uh, uh, possibly talk a little bit more uh, about uh, genetics and what you mean by genetics uh, for you know people listening to you know clearly understand it. Right, and and you know I just it's a good time to to say that right now because having said um, you know what you said before, I don't want people to be left with the idea that any of this is kind of deterministic because it's right. not. What right. what we're talking about is you know tendencies and 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 probabilities. So you know um, uh, just because um, there's some force that makes someone a little bit more likely to be a leader doesn't guarantee they're a leader and 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 vice versa um but it's like um it's like capital right we know that people who have more 
net worth are more likely to start businesses because they can more easily self-finance, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't guarantee it. It just affects the odds, and it's a similar thing uh, here as well. But what we mean when we talk about genetic factors is all the things that are innate to uh, people um, that come essentially from their their genetic makeup, and that could operate lots of different ways, right? We could have um, differences in how people are genetically coded um, and how that affects the um, neurotransmitters, the uh, brain chemicals uh, th- that uh, operate um, to stimulate people. And a good example of this is dopamine receptors. And dopamine is the sort of the feel-good chemical in the brain. Right. And we know that um, some people's brains uh, release more or less of the chemical. Um, and, you know, one of the questions is, okay, well, um, how might that affect behavior? And there's some evidence to suggest that, you know, some people who uh, are less uh, prone to releasing the dopamine or having the dopamine in their brains, they need more stimulation to do it. And so they might right. be more likely to seek more novelty and new situations and those kinds of experiences. And that's where we observe, actually, in some of the data that we've looked at, that, in fact, some people are innately more likely to seek new uh, situations and seek novelty, and that those are people more likely to start businesses. Now, start, starting businesses isn't the only thing they're going to do. You know, some people might go into extreme sports or something right. else in response, but there's that biological effect. Then there's this other effect that essentially you get uh, people who become more likely to have certain kinds of uh, personalities or uh, cognitive abilities, and that leads them down certain roads, right? If I am innately better at um, mathematics um, uh, early on, that that might take me down the road to being more likely to study math, and if that's the case, the odds of me becoming, you know, an actuary later in life are much higher than if I'm, you know, not heading down a mathematics road and I'm heading down a uh, a literature road and and you know then we know that there's interactions between the genetic um, makeup of people and the situations that they're in so we we've got some evidence on leadership that shows that people who are innately predisposed to be leaders they have a genetic makeup if those people o- have to overcome some kind of obstacle in their teenage years some sort of bad thing that happened to their family, like the parent lost a job or they lost a parent or something like that. It's that interaction of being innately predisposed and the stimulus of having to overcome an obstacle that makes them more likely to adopt the leadership role. So we get all these different mechanisms all all coming together to affect um, uh, the tendency. But what they have all, all in common is some portion of the outcome is coming from innate differences. So some people are more comfortable, um, when I was reading the book, Dr. Shane, in, in putting their money into like a high-risk business. I, I was thinking, you know, I was going to tell you before the show, Don, that this might apply to uh, even franchising because I guess, you know, the people that are investing into, and I know you wrote a book on this topic too as well, Dr. Shane, people investing in a franchise might invest in a franchise because they aren't, um, I guess, their level of risk or risk-taking isn't as high, maybe because of something genetically within them. If they they have investing in a, a business that has a track record of success, um, I guess you can apply it to, to the world of franchising as well, couldn't you? Well, right. So part of what we don't have is that we don't have 
a lot of evidence that would show the specific examples right. here. And, you know, it's interesting because, I, you know, I talk to, um, you know, folks that do um, – radio show on angel investing and you know they say well you know how does this apply there it's the same thing it probably yeah. applies to everything right um but we don't, we don't have the evidence that that would say here's the example in the case of um a fr- franchising but what we do know is that there's a innate component to how much financial risk people are willing to take and there's some very interesting studies where people you know look at identical and fraternal twins mm, and, and yeah. that's a, a good, good example because the identical twins share 100 percent of their uh genes and the fraternal twin, uh, twins share half and that's right. how people can measure these genetic effects and you see okay people go to some kind of um, money manager and they're asked to fill out a questionnaire about how, how they'd like their money allocated and uh, the evidence is there's a genetic component to how they fill out that questionnaire. And other people in Sweden, when they privatized the social security system, they actually linked um, that up to data about uh, twins and found that actually whether people were choosing their social security to be in stocks or bonds was affected by um, their genetic makeup. And people have also even found versions of specific genes that are associated with that. So we know that risk-taking, which is probably kind of a basic aspect of human beings, you know, throughout um, our entire history uh, is there. Well, that probably manifests itself not just in physical risks, but in taking financial risks. And if franchising is a type of financial risk-taking, then one would expect it to matter there as well. I don't have any evidence to show that, but, you know, there's no reason to say, well, you know, picking stocks and bonds, the innate component to risk taking is there, but it wouldn't be to purchasing a business that doesn't seem logical. Wow, it's fascinating. Uh, and Dr. Shane, uh, I mean, do you feel that people fear discussing genetics or maybe finding out information about themselves that might be different than what they thought they were? I mean, yeah, yeah. I, maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think there's two big issues. One part of it is that people say, well. I don't really want to know about these things because I might not be able to do anything about it. And you know, part of that is that that's a kind of that's a sort of initial first reaction. But one of the things that that we realize is that there's probably actually um, down the road a bunch of things that will will happen. That if people can do this kind of research and understand these things, they'll figure out what the link is between the stimulus that people need and their innate predispositions to get outcomes. And and we all would like to have um, kind of an ability to have the things that we do make for, uh, you know, desirable outcomes. So if we say, well, look, you know, I really want to be a leader, but it right. seems like all these leadership training courses that I'm taking aren't doing anything. Well, why is that, right? And we don't have the answer today, but, but we might 10 years down the road be able to say, well, see, this kind of person, they're more likely to respond to this kind of training or information. So part of it is that people, their initial reaction is, um, uh, I don't think I'm going to get anything out of knowing this. The second reaction is, this is informational really at this point, but it's not an action plan, right? We don't know enough information to, to say that. You know, I've written books on other topics where we can say, look, we really know a lot about how you would say design a franchise system so that a person can read the book and take it out today and do that. This isn't that kind of book. It's not going to uh, tell you that. 
Um, and then the third part is that people um, have a negative reaction that uh, it'll just be used, the information will just be used uh, badly. It'll be used for uh, uh, bad purposes. Um, you know, my, my reaction to that kind of view always is, well, you know, just because you think something could be used uh, for a, a bad outcome doesn't mean you want to ignore it because most likely the only people who are going to pay attention to something um, are the people who are going to um, have uh, ill motives if everybody else is uh, afraid to look at it. And even if all you want to do is regulate something, you should understand the patterns. I mean, if you use the analogy of um, insider trading, we wouldn't want to say, oh, insider trading is bad. Let's not look at it at all. Um, and the only people who would pay any attention to it are those who wanted to take advantage of it. We might want to say, oh, it's really bad. We need to understand how it happens um, and uh, take action. So even if you think that these genetic effects are bad, you might want to know about them. So you could say, okay, well, we need to make sure they don't influence. We don't let people use them in the workplace. Right. Interesting. What would you say to um, people that want to be great leaders, Dr. Shane, or, or an entrepreneur, and let's say they haven't been successful? Um, what do you say to those people? Like Leona was the one that, that came to mind. I referenced her earlier on. Uh, you mentioned her in Chapter 7 of the book. What, what advice would you give her if she's just been unsuccessful in leadership and she still wants to be a great leader? As you said, she, she went to all the training, she's read all the books, and she just is, is there anything she can do? Right. So, so here's the difficult situation. The answer is there's always something you can do, uh-huh. right? That all of this stuff is 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 probabilistic, but part of it is what you want to do is give people a mental framework that doesn't say, um, I'm going to fix your problem, right? One of the things that actually business school professors do, I think that is unfortunate, is we kind of give an overinflated sense of how incentives and training and all this are going to work, right? Uh-huh. You, do, you do it, it's going to work. Right. You want to be a leader, boom, we'll train you to be a leader. And what you realize is, no, it might not work for everyone because there are aspects of them that we can't um, tap and, and, and change, and we don't know how to do that yet. So if right. um, there is something about certain people's innate predispositions that we need to train them a little bit differently to be leaders, then they might experience a lot of kinds of training that we haven't we haven't figured out the right stimulus yet and and they're going to um be unsuccessful and the point is you know uh, not to not to give up i know that this isn't really the you know ideal answer because what it's saying is kind of the sales job that people get of do this and you're going to your problems right. will go away um the, the what what this is saying is it's not so simple and um, the problem is that that's not always the most appealing answer. It's not so simple. It's complicated. You need to keep working on it. We need to still try to figure it out. We don't have all the answers yet. Not 100% appealing, but I think it's the reality. And how, do you want to talk a little bit about management? I know in the book you, you spoke about a number of different topics, Dr. Gene. How about um, management style and how genes affect management style? Right, so this is probably actually one of the areas that um, is probably the most interesting for people who are in, interested in, in franchising because we, we know that franchising is a kind of business ownership that's different than other kinds of business ownership um, that, you know, you, you, you will have to be part of a system and so there are more rules about how you do what you're doing. And um, there's a lot of aspects of, management behavior that have a genetic component, whether people, you know, are willing to break rules, whether they're very 
planning-oriented, whether they're um, highly persistent, whether they're um, intuitive decision-makers or not, um, uh, whether they're um, risk-taking. And, and, you know, one of the things is that um, if people um, have a predisposition to be kind of a certain way, they are going to find it easier to be in situations that reinforce that harder to be in situations that don't. Now, um, it, it, not all that comes from uh, genetics, but, but in fact what, what it's saying is that some people um, innately their style of managing might fit certain jobs and certain kinds of uh, business startup situations better than others. It literally makes them feel more comfortable. That's interesting. And do you think there's like tests that one should take um, Dr. Shane, before, like, let's say, getting into a particular franchise opportunity, I, I, I know, Don, um, you've, you've read some articles in the past uh, about taking, like, personality tests, and some franchisors won't take you unless you pass this particular personality right. test. Did you yeah. have any thoughts on that, Dr. Shane, as far as, like, what kind of tests there are available, yeah. and are they accurate? So part of this is this is always tricky because it's not that there's um, zero merit to these uh, tests. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, there's some merit. The problem is that there's not um, there's not a huge amount of predictive power of the test. But because um, we know that a big chunk of um, of personality is comes from innate forces, then you know what in essence people are saying is, look, I'm giving you this personality test because I'm looking for somebody. Um, who's a certain type to buy uh, buy my franchise, and um, I know that some part of that is um, just how they were born, um, and I'm in essence making a selection. Now the problem is that when you take all the factors into consideration, there's it's not it's not strong enough to say, oh well, the person with a certain personality would never be any good at being a franchisee. It's just um, about probabilities. Now, um, if say somebody with a certain personality is, you know, five percent less likely to be a good um, uh, franchisee for a particular organization, and so somebody applies that that test, does it mean that they couldn't do it? No, but it means that if you've got somebody who's picking ten thousand franchisees, five um, percent is enough of a um, people for them to say, you know what, it's worth me doing this selection because I can avoid a few people who wouldn't fit. That's interesting, Dr. Shane. I, uh, when I first got the book, I, uh, what I always do, I you know, look through the different chapters. I immediately went to Chapter 9, Born Entrepreneurs, How Your Genes Affect Your Tendency to Start Companies, because I've started a few companies. I've been in business 20 years. And, uh, and uh, you know, basically, you know, for people listening, because this is not you know, easy stuff to to understand, but you did a great job in putting it in simple format so people could understand. But you say here, your genes influence the odds that you will become an entrepreneur. The statement is true whether entrepreneurship means being self-employed, owning and operating a business, founding a company, or participating in the business startup process. So I like how you clearly state that your genes, um, uh, I guess, uh, like you mentioned before, the tendencies and probabilities, I guess you have a, a greater chance if your genes have that type of makeup and your odds are better that you can be successful. I guess that's what really you've really concluded with uh, you know some of this uh, uh, you know work that you've done, right? 
Right. Now, now part of this is that the way that we've um, come up with that evidence is by looking at um, identical and uh, fraternal twins. And so basically, if there's a genetic component to something, um, identical twins should be more likely to both do it than the fraternal twins. And that's where you can find the effect. The, the, the catch to all of this is there could be, say, um, 500 different genes operating each with a tiny effect. And since right. people have um, all different combinations of those genes, it's not as if you're saying um, this person is going to be less likely to do so because they're they're missing, you know, X. It's more like, no, all together you add up all these effects and you see the patterns, right? Um, now, again, this is useful for people trying to understand what's going on. I'm not sure at this point that people can turn that into something that's necessarily, you know, completely proactive because you might say, okay, well, um, I'm um, more likely to be uh, an entrepreneur because of kind of um, how I was born, um, but I could still do it anyway. It's, it's, it will tell us that one set of people are more likely than others, but at the individual level, we don't have enough information yet to say, okay, well, um, the odds are too much not in my favor because of how I was born to do it. And we probably won't ever find anything that's so powerful as to say, you know, nobody should do it because the odds are so much against them. It's going to be a little more likely. It's the same way as saying, um, if you to go back to the financing example, if you have more money, your odds of being able to start a business are greater. It doesn't mean that um, we should say to a person who has zero net worth, don't ever consider starting a business, right? Um, right. It just means, you know, you, you should probably be aware that, you know, your odds are a little lower being able to pull this off. Dr. saying which, you know, this uh, question I just thought of, uh, uh, would you rather have a, a great genetic makeup for, uh, you know, starting up a business or being an entrepreneur, but maybe have average, just average work ethic and passion for what you do, or maybe a little lower genetic makeup with great passion and work ethic? Well, that's an almost impossible question to answer because the the passion and work, work ethic yeah. is partially a result of your genetic makeup and partially a result of your environmental experience. As well, okay. Right. So, right. So, all, fine, yeah. so, all, so all of these things are having... Um, you know these these effects. Where I think that this is going, and where it would be useful in the future, is if you say, okay, look, this person is um, innately kind of predisposed to be very passionate, um, but they're also innately predisposed to be really disorganized. Um, and this other person is the opposite. Um, what's the best kind of way to get them to be? Um, each of them to be effective at starting businesses. Um, somewhere in the future, we'll probably be able to say, look, the passionate person who's disorganized, you need to do these kinds of things to help them become an entrepreneur. And the person who's not very passionate and highly organized, you need to do a different set of things. So I don't think it's going to be so much um, this set of people will be better or this set of people will be worse. That you know, 10, 20 years down the road, we're going to be able to use this for, it's going to be saying, no, look, what's the best way to match? What's the best way to take advantage of who people are to um, make them able to have the work 
outcomes that they'd like to have. Wow. And how far away do you think are, are we from all this, Dr. Shane? I, I, I mean, 10 years, 20 years. Um, I, I mean, are scientists actually researching this topic in addition right now? Yeah, so people are doing it. I mean, one of the things that's happened over the past um, decade is that there's been a very big increase in the amount of um, work that uses the genetics to try to um, go outside of things like medicine and go into uh, things like work-related behavior. Now, it's still tiny by the standards of, um, uh, you know, the total number of people working in um, on medical outcomes, but it's attracting interest, and people are are starting to figure out that this matters. There's also these parallel paths that aren't about genetics, but other aspects of biology. There's a whole trend in what people call neuroeconomics and neuromarketing, where people are studying how people literally uh, react to um, things. So if I give you an example of, you know, an advertisement, right? You know, you have an advertisement, you want people to buy stuff. Well, one of the things that these uh, neuromarketing people have figured out is that different kinds of ads stimulate different parts of the brain, whether it's the kind of rational portion or the emotional portion. And you kind of want to, depending on what you're trying to do, you might want to trigger certain parts of the brain. And so what we realize is that there's a biological um, uh, portion to these reactions that we need to understand and that, you know, 20 years, 30 years down the road, I don't know how long it's going to be, we're going to probably see more of an understanding that there is a link between people's biology and things that happen in the work world. And what's next for you, Dr. Shane? Are you going to continue studying this topic? I mean, you can see your passion for it. And... Yeah, so I I think that probably for, for a long time this will be the focus of the kind of uh, research that I'm uh, – doing, um, you know, part of it is that now that we're moving into doing um, work with molecular geneticists, we're literally trying to find, are there specific genes uh, associated with things like um, recognizing business opportunities? Um, you know, that's a, it's a step-by-step process of small steps that take a long time. So, you know, I would say that, um Probably for the, the at least the next decade, that's what it's going to be the focus of my attention. That's terrific. And how could um, our listeners get more information on you, Dr. Sheen, and, and getting the book? Can they go to Amazon.com, or is there a website they should go to? Yeah, so as for the book, the best thing to do is to um, is go to Amazon.com and look up uh, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders. Um, finding me, uh, Googling Scott Shane at Case Western Reserve University usually pulls up all kinds of stuff about me. That's great. We'll put a link up for our listeners as well so they can have easy access to that information. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Shane. You're an incredible guest, and we'd love to have you back each year and, and talk about what you're doing. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, wow. Dr. Shane. Great Bye-bye. show, huh, Don? Yeah, very interesting, Uh, and, and that's what we provide to the country, Marty. Interesting show.
franchise interviews. From Easton, Pennsylvania to Sydney, Australia, you're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews.